Well, this is a great opportunity to uh, drop in out of the sky and uh, have an opportunity to fellowship with you. I'm thankful to Pat for the invitation and uh, always excited when I can uh, meet some of the men that we have trained at the seminary. In particular, uh, I don't have the opportunity to travel around much anymore. I try to keep myself close to home. In fact, um, even though I'm in my 36th year of ministry at Grace Church, I think I'm more energized now in the pastorate than, than I've ever been. And uh, focusing as much as I can on that, cutting back on all the other stuff like colleges and seminaries and, and radio. So I'm, I'm down pretty much to uh, preparing sermons at the church and kind of want to finish uh, out my life in the years that God gives me, focusing on continuing to preach through the New Testament and finish up the commentaries if uh, God is willing. I think at the rate I'm going, the commentary on Luke is going to be about eight volumes. It's taken me forever. Uh, but slower is better than faster, right? Because you gotta, you got to dig in and get everything the Lord has prepared for us there. So these are wonderful days as a pastor. That's really me. That's my heart. You know me from afar uh, as a guy who writes books and maybe on the radio and tapes but my, my love and my passion is to shepherd the flock of God, um, to be there with people in the hospital, to be there at the funeral, to comfort the family. That's pretty much a weekly routine for me, and uh, to participate in all those areas that uh, you do in your own pastoral ministry. And then the relentless responsibility to prepare sermons when you've been in the same place for 36 years, and everything you've ever said has been heard and recorded. This is a great challenge. This is a great challenge. Uh, the last thing you want to hear from people is, yeah, yeah, I like that sermon the last time you preached it too, Pastor. That was, uh, was really good. Uh, I remember I was up in Edmonton, Alberta, which is nowhere, way, way up. Prairie Bible Institute, uh, Canadian Bible School. Um, I don't know how I got up there, but I was teaching at a Bible conference, and I, was, I preached for five days up there in that place, and uh, I got a letter when I got back from a lady, and the letter went like this, Dear uh, Reverend MacArthur, I drove 15 hours across the Canadian Plains to come and hear you, and I can't believe that you used an illustration that I had heard you use on the radio. At least you could come up with some new material. And I immediately bowed my head and prayed for her husband. <laughs> Man, how would you like to be married to that? Golly. I mean, I just need a little space, not a lot. Give me a break, huh? Um, and as I think about the church, I'm always energized to think about the church. I, I never really think like an educator. I don't think like an administrator. <laughs> I don't know how they think. Um, I don't think like a politician. I just think about the church all the time. Uh, I, I just think... You know, what is the church to be and how am I to be as a, as a servant of God carrying out my role in leading the church? And recently I've been drawn to the 16th chapter of Matthew. If you want to open your Bible, I just kind of want to work my way through this a little bit with you. Matthew chapter 16 is an, is an old and very familiar text of Scripture to us. And sometimes that's, that's the most enjoyable to approach. One that we're very familiar with be, because... Uh, Familiarity often breeds uh, contempt in the sense that because we're familiar, we fail to maybe dig out all the nuances that are there. But I find this uh, one of the uh, things that, that, that flows out of this text is 
This is the Lord Jesus Christ um, speaking definitively, very definitively here, uh, and it has to do with the church. In fact, uh, I, I guess you could call uh, this passage how to recognize a church. Some people would say, find a steeple or find a sign that says church or look for an organ or a praise band or whatever. But if you really want to find a true church, here is a model that you can follow. And this is becoming more and more challenging. Uh, If there's any question that I answer more than any other, it is the question that people send me by email, mail, phone messages, bags of mail to grace to you. How can I find a church where the Word of God is taught? I'm frustrated. I can't find a church. I hear it all the time. More churches than ever, but less churches that really have a right to the biblical definition. Um, in fact, I was asked on a on a a show, radio show, by by a, a guy about names of churches, and he said, "What do you think of this name? What do you think of that name? What do you think?" He was talking about the merging churches and things like that, and I said, it "Doesn't bother me what." the name of the church is, it's that they use the word church that bothers me. That's, that's what I feel you have to protect. What is a church? And I think the Lord gives us some great insight here in the foundations of the church, both explicitly and implicitly. And I just want to give you seven things to think about. And I, you probably are ahead of me on this, but I just kind of put them out. You can kind of work through them yourself. First of all, starting in verse 13, and we'll kind of flow down uh, to the end of the chapter. The first thing that characterizes the church, and I think you, uh, you know that this is the first place in the New Testament where the church is mentioned, I will build my church, right? That, you could say, is the main idea of this whole section. I will build my church. And the first thing that marks the church is what we'll call the great confession. The great confession. Back in verse 13, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, we'll stop there for a minute. Caesarea Philippi wasn't always the name of that area. Caesarea Philippi used to be known as Panaeus in ancient history, and it was named after the god Pan, uh, P-A-N, who was believed to have been birthed near this location. And so... This was a place where there was a a lot of uh, Greek idolatry that was connected in ancient times with the god Pan and other deities connected to him. And of course, uh, when when the Romans came along and uh, under Caesar Augustus, they decided to do this tribute to him and so they changed the name to Caesarea Philippi. So it was a place of ancient Greek worship. It was a place of current Roman idolatry, Caesar's being worshipped as God. It was perhaps the one place in the land of Israel where there were more converging religions than any other place. It was a perfect place to clarify who is really God. He came into the district of Caesarea Philippi and everybody was aware of all of this historical religion that was everywhere, including the Judaism that existed there among the people who called that place home. It was there that he began asking his disciples, saying, who do people say the Son of Man is? A very pertinent question in a very religious environment. 
Almost as if he was saying, and as we're surrounded by religion, what is the popular opinion about me? How do I fit into this big scheme? They said, some say, uh, you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the great confession. That is the cornerstone confession of the church, is it not? The church, according to Ephesians 2.20, is built on Christ as the cornerstone. There is no other foundation, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. The first absolute in a biblical view of the church is an accurate Christology. A lot of churches talk about a personal relationship to Jesus. That's a very pop culture kind of thing to talk about. In fact... According to Newsweek magazine recently, 85% of, this is hard to believe, 85% of people in America say they're evangelical Christians. They have some kind of personal relationship with Jesus. 70% of those people believe that you can go to heaven without ever knowing about Jesus. 50% of those people believe there's no such thing as absolute truth. 9%, according to Newsweek, of evangelical students who check off the evangelical box, 9% believe in absolute truth. So what kind of Christianity is this? What kind of evangelicalism is this? A lot of people talk about a personal relationship to Jesus as some sentimental idea without any understanding of the truth of who He is. Here we find just the suggestion, of course, and the very strong one in this context, that the Lord is going to build His church on this great confession. And the great confession is, you are the Christ. That sweeps back and collects the whole Old Testament, doesn't it? That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. That embraces it all. Search the Scriptures, for they are they which speak of Me. Luke 24, and He walks along on the road to Emmaus, and He opens up the Law and the Prophets and the Holy Writings and teaches them everything about Himself. He is the long-awaited One, Shiloh, the One with the scepter in His hand. He is the Messiah, the Promised One. And He is the One who is the Son, that is, who bears the same essence as the living God. You know, whenever you see in a biblical context the expression, the living God, it's very definitive. Because they lived in a world of dead idols. And it is to say there is only one that is alive. We don't live in an idolatrous culture. We don't have idols all over the place. Our idols are more discreet and hidden idols of the heart. But when it says the living God, it is, it is simply a way to contrast the true God from all the false gods who are not alive at all. A great text on this, and you ought to 
preach on this sometime. Turn to Isaiah 44. Uh, you may remember it once we get there, but it's, it's almost humorous. It's, it's one of the Bibles that you could argue is funny. Bible sections, it's actually humorous or funny. In this great chapter, at the beginning, verse 6, we'll pick it up at verse 6. Um, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, and there is no God besides me. That's it. One God. And who is like me, let Him proclaim and declare it. Let, let Him recount it to me in order, etc., etc. Then down to verse 9. Well, verse 8, is there any God beside me? Is there any other rock? I, I know of none. Any other foundation? I know of none. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so that they will be put to shame. And then he goes on to the, the silliness of this. Who has fashioned a God or cast an idol to no profit? Literally talking about metal work. You actually make the God yourselves. Shaping, verse 12, iron into a cutting tool and putting it over the coals and fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm, the blacksmith. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. The guy's sweating up a storm in there trying to make this God. Another one uses wood, verse 13. Gets a measuring line, outlines it with red chalk. He works it, planes it, outlines it with a compass so its proportions are correct. Makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, uh, that he may sit it in a house. Surely, he cuts cedars for himself. He takes a cypress or an oak. He raises it for himself. He plants the thing. He grows the thing. He cuts it. And then it becomes something for him to burn. So he takes some of the tree, and burns it to warm himself. He takes some of the tree to put in the oven to make bread, and then he takes some of the tree and makes a god out of it. How absurd is that? And then he falls down before it. That's absolutely absurd. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats the meat as he roasts the roast, and he's satisfied. He warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image, falls down before it, worships, also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for thou art my God. I mean, that is basically like somebody who's on the level of a poached egg. That is mindless. They don't know. Verse 18, they don't understand. In contrast to that, verse 20, he talks about a deceived heart. But in contrast to that, you have the living God. And this is stark in Caesarea Philippi because of all that's going on around them. And so the confession is that Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the Son. That is one in essence with the one and only living God. This is the confession that establishes the church. A church is made up of people who make this confession. Can we get real basic here? A church is not designed for non-believers. It is an assembly of people who make this great confession. 
And when unbelievers come, one thing ought to be profoundly clear, that everybody assembled there is assembled there for the purpose of affirming this great confession. Church is not a place for non-Christians who need a motivational speech. It's not a place for non-Christians who need help for their addictions or who want to somehow feel spiritual. It is the assembly of those who make the great confession. And nobody can make that confession but by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? No man can say Jesus is Lord, 1 Corinthians 12.3, except the Holy Spirit enables him to say it. Look for just a moment at um, 1 Timothy 3. Just thinking through this. 1 Timothy 3. I wrote these things down. I'm having a little trouble reading because the plane bumped the whole way up here. So, we'll see how well I do. Now, I just love this. Verse 16. Well, back into verse 15, he says, The church is the church of the living God. There's that living God again. Therefore, it's it's the one legitimate place of worship because it's worshiping the only God who is alive. So, is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and support of the truth, and spent a lot of time talking about that, and listen to this. Verse 16 then describes the foundation, the cornerstone of the church. And by common, what? Confession. The church is a gathering of people who make a common confession. And what is that confession? That great and awesome is the mystery of of godliness. It is the confession that God came in human flesh. Revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the Spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It is a Christological confession. This is at the very heart of the church. John 6, some of the disciples left because of what Jesus said. And He said to the remaining ones, uh, will you also go away? And Peter says, to whom shall we go? You and you alone have the words of life. This is the great confession of the church. To be a Christian, you must confess Jesus as Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10. And believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. These things are written, says John, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing you might have life in His name. The church then is again, and so basic, the gathering of those who make this common confession. They're not there trying to make sure they don't offend anybody by overdoing the confession. They're there for the purpose of affirming that confession. In fact, in Jude chapter 3, or Jude verse 3, This gives us a further insight into something of the dilemma of our own time. In verse 3 of Jude, he says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. Again, that word common. Uh, I think he had a positive purpose. Uh, I think he wanted to talk about the glories of their common salvation, their common confession concerning Christ. But... 
Try as he may, he could never get that one off the ground. Because he said, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which is once for all delivered to the saints. Bottom line, if you don't start defending the common salvation, we aren't going to have a common salvation. And that's exactly where we are today. People who are very, very aggressive in saying, you don't have to know Christ to be saved. Catholics, with their warped view of salvation, they're going to go to heaven. Jews are going to go to heaven. Well-intentioned Muslims are going to go to heaven. Pagans who are seeking God the best way they can, they're going to go to heaven. We have lost the common confession. And it's no small challenge to recover it. So the church is not a place where people get spiritually sentimental. It's not a place for sacramentalism, superficial uh, or superficial or symbolic. The church is a gathering of those who say with Thomas, My Lord and my God. And with Peter, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, we all understand that. And, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the center of everything in the church. Of everything. It is that great confession. Well, you can fill in a lot of blanks there. Uh, let me give you a second thing, because we're just trying to touch lightly on this. And I want to cover uh, the seven if I can. A second is, a gr- is the great communication. It is essential for us to understand the second aspect of life in the church. And it uh, is very familiar to us as well. Look at what Jesus said. And this is so basic. Verse 17. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonas, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The church will always be marked as a gathering of people who make the great confession and live under the authority of the great communication. It was revealed, apocalypto, to disclose, to uncover, to make known. Not by flesh and blood. We don't have a human message, right? Our message is not derived from any human source. But rather a divine source. My Father who is in heaven. The church depends for its whole life and doctrine and ministry and witness on the Word of God. First Peter 1, we're begotten by the Word. John 17, we're sanctified by the Word. Second Timothy 3, we're perfected by the Word. Ephesians 4, we're edified by the Word. We're comforted by the Word. You name it. It's the work of the Word in every case. Peter is being told by the Lord that the source of the truth that he affirms is divine. We have no message but God's message. There is no other message. So basic, and yet the church has so deviated from this. Look at verse 18. Follow the thought a little bit. I know you're familiar with this. I also say to you that you are Peter, uh, Petras, Stone, and upon this rock, Petra, rock bed, I will build my church. Now, I want to stop there a minute because this gets a lot of treatment in everybody's commentaries. And 
And I think sometimes it, it, we overlook one element of it. Uh, he is not saying, I'm building the church on Peter. This is not establishing the papacy. We all know that. Recently did a tape on the papacy and the, its corruption. It's a very sordid thing. And if you ever studied the history of the, of the Medici family in Italy and how they bought and sold the papacy and bankrupted it with orgies, it's an incredible thing to think about. But we all understand those things. The bottom line here is, you're Peter. That's one thing. That's you. But on this rock, I'll build my church. And it's on that great confession. And furthermore, it's not just on the fact that Peter makes the great confession, but he builds his church upon anyone who makes that great confession. That's why Ephesians 2.20 says, the church is built upon the foundation of the, what does it say? Apostles and prophets. All who make that confession. That is foundational to the church. And, of course, the apostles and those associated with the apostles were the authors of the New Testament. The church is built upon all of those who are used by God to bring the great revelation of the great confession in all its fullness. Certainly, the church is not built on the supremacy of Peter, nor is it built on the confession of one man. But it continues to be built on all those who make the confession. However, the apostles and prophets are the foundation because all we do is echo the confession that they put down by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on the pages of Holy Scripture. The church, then, is a gathering of people who make the great confession and submit to the great communication or the great revelation of Scripture. Uh, this, um, this is what gives us, in verse 19, the keys to the kingdom. If you have a key, what does that allow you to do? Open up and let somebody in. That's what it's talking about. How do you let people in the kingdom? There's only one way to let people in the kingdom. The keys to the kingdom is an understanding of the gospel, Right? Well, what unlocks the door and lets people in? It's a true understanding of the gospel, a true Christology, and a true bibliology, a true understanding of Christ as revealed on the pages of Scripture. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That isn't some special uh, apostolic gift that belonged only to Peter and was passed down in some kind of bizarre succession to modern popes. He's not saying that at all. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He says it here to Peter, but on a couple of other occasions, one in Matthew and one in John, he said it to all the rest of the disciples. And essentially, it broadens to us as well. Every time I stand up on a Sunday and preach the Word of God, I open the kingdom door and invite people to come through. But it's only the truth that opens the door. Christ-centered, Word-centered churches unlock the kingdom. And they do it so powerfully that even the gates of hell can't stop it. As he says in verse 18. Verse 19, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. All that says is that when you say to someone using the old rabbinical language, when you say someone's bound in sin based on what the Scripture says, you're saying what heaven says. When you say someone is loose from sin based on what Scripture says, you're just saying what heaven said. Heaven is just another way to say God. It's a delicate way. It's a reverent way to refer to God. The point is this, if somebody comes along and says, I don't believe in the gospel, then you can say you're bound in your sin. 
If somebody comes along and says, with all my heart, I believe the gospel, you can say your sins are loosed, can't you? I can say it as well as Peter could say it or any other apostle could say it. So here is the church's real power. It moves through the world inviolable and invincible, and the great power of death which Satan wields can't even stop it. In fact, the blood of the saints usually becomes the, the thing that causes the church to flourish and grow. We move through the world powerfully, unlocking the kingdom whenever we say on earth what heaven has already declared. That is, when we apply the revealed truth of Scripture. That means we, we have to be clear about what we say. We have to have an understanding of Scripture. You can understand why uh, the liberals attack the person of Christ. That's obvious. That's, that's getting at the heart of the Gospel. But even more consistently, they attack the inspiration, authority, and character of Scripture. It's just relentless. I was telling Pat today doing a radio program that I look at my life in, in like four chunks the first few years of my ministry, apart from my regular preaching and teaching in the church, I was engaged in a war uh, basically to defend the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. For ten years, I was a part of the uh, Council on Biblical Inerrancy that produced the Chicago Statement. And there were a hundred of us working through all those years dealing with the attacks on the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. And just when we put that to rest, a new attack came. Only this was an attack on the sufficiency of Scripture. And it came on the one part from charismatics who were saying, we get our own revelation, we have extra-biblical revelation, the Holy Spirit tells us this, God tells us this, etc., etc., as if the Scripture was not enough. Uh, we had to have more. And then they were joined by the psychology people who said the Bible isn't enough to sanctify somebody. There are all kinds of things going on in their lives that only psychologists know, and there's some, some things that have to be dug into. And I was in pastor's conferences numerous times when uh, people were trying to marry psychology with the Bible as a necessary um, marriage to produce true sanctification. And so I wrote a book dealing and preached all over the world dealing with the sufficiency of Scripture. And then in the last little chunk of my life, the last few years, I've been trying to defend the depth of Scripture from all the superficial people who treat it lightly, who never, you know, they jump from reading the text to applying the thing without ever explaining it. That's just very common. Treating it as if it's very superficial and um, almost using it as a pretext. I call it little Bo Peep preaching. Uh, you know, little Bo Peep, she was a little, uh, she lost her sheep. Oh, she lost her sheep and didn't know where to find. That's what they do with a Bible verse. And then you tell a few stories and there's no real depth of understanding. You could do that with any story just like that. But the point is there, there was this idea, we've got to go deep. We've got to get into doctrine. And we've got to dig into the great glorious truths and understand the greatness of our God and our Savior and the depth and the greatness and the sweep of our glorious redemption and salvation. And all the time you're fighting this battle of superficiality. And now we've got a new one facing us. And I can tell you where I'm going with the next book. Because the emergent church is making a wholesale assault on the clarity of Scripture. On the clarity of Scripture. I may say a little bit about that tonight. But the attack is just incredibly strong. Brian McLaren, for example, who's the guru, self-appointed guru of that movement, says certainty is highly overrated. They find their comfort in ambiguity. You see, the more ambiguous the Bible is, the less responsible they are to it. 
And sin hates the light. So when you run to the Word of God and the light shines brightly, you run the other direction and then you say, well, it's ambiguous. Look. And they even will say, this is called the hermeneutics of humility. I'm too humble to say that I know what the Bible means. So the movement is telling us God's given us an obscure message. So you had one movement that depreciates doctrine and is very superficial and tolerant of everything. And, the, and tolerance just moves one step further and says, not only are we tolerant, we're so tolerant, we don't think anybody's right. And if you think you're right, you're arrogant. You're arrogant. There are some people making a shift over to that kind of thing. It's, uh, it's very serious. And it, what they're basically saying is, um, God can't communicate. In fact, there's one thing to take openness theology and say God doesn't know the future. It's quite another thing to say what He does know, He can't communicate. That God has given us a Bible that is virtually obscure, ambiguous. That's why if you go to an emergent church, you can have your, you can have your latte, you can work on your computer, you can play your iPod, listen to music, get up, leave, come back, wander around, do anything you want, while somebody may or may not be talking. It's like a lot of kids writing dirty words in the back of a barn and running. They don't want any authority or any accountability. And the way you get rid of that is to simply say there is nothing that can be certain. This is the mark of the movement. You ask, what's the emerging church? The emerging church is a movement that says the Bible is ambiguous. That is what the emerging church says. <laughs> Some of them right out there, I guess. Yeah. And I wonder, how, you know, I wonder how that compares with 1 Corinthians 2.16, but we have the mind of Christ. And in the Word of God, we know exactly how God thinks and how Christ thinks. And the Bible is called light, not darkness, isn't it? Really important. God is able to communicate. Scripture is light. God's purpose is to save and sanctify by His Word. And it can't therefore be obscure or He can't accomplish His purpose. Furthermore, He holds us all accountable to it. Jesus said four times just in the Gospel of Matthew, Have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? And what He was saying by that is, you're responsible for a proper understanding of the Old Testament. And by the way, the entire New Testament was not written to pastors and Greek scholars. The whole New Testament was written to baby Christians. Through the years and through history, the Bible and the Gospel is commonly understood by diverse believers all over the world and in all periods. So, we just see emerging here this foundational understanding of the church that it's built on the great confession concerning the, the person of Jesus Christ. The great communication, that is that our source is from God, that is a divine communication, a divine revelation. I think thirdly, there's the, there's the great contrast. We have to understand something else about the church. This is so interesting. Verse 20, how the Holy Spirit crafts all of this event. Then He warned the disciples, Jesus did, that they should tell no one that He was the Christ. That's just counterintuitive, isn't it? Peter comes off with this ma massive, magnificent confession from God, and Jesus warns them, very strong language, Warning, very strong, serious prohibition, tell no one. 
That is absolutely counterintuitive. That is anti-evangelism. What do you mean, tell no one? What, is, what are you telling us? Tell no one that you are the Messiah? Why? Because the popular misconception of the Messiah was so far-reaching. They were looking for a military leader, an economic leader. They were looking for an earthly ruler. They had their own kind of messianic image all built up in their minds. And we all remember in the Gospel of John how they tried after Jesus fed the crowds in the sixth chapter to take him and make him a king by force. Tell no one, because it will feed the popular misconception. It's too soon, it's too early. And what is our Lord warning against? Any confusion between the church and human government. Any confusion between what is eternal and what is temporal. Any confusion between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men, and it's back again to those familiar words in John 18.36, My kingdom is not of this world. And the Lord actually says, Don't preach or you will elevate that issue. Far cry from where we are today, right? The evangelical church is caught up in all this politicizing and it's just endless. Trying to change laws and change government, and change policy and rewrite the Constitution and have an impact on free market enterprise. When Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, at that moment, Pilate lost interest in Jesus. He said, are you a king? Just in case maybe he was. If he was a real king in Pilate's understanding of a king, Pilate might want to treat him one way. But once he said, my kingdom is not of this world, Pilate's response was, get out of my sight. Jesus said, I have nothing to do with the kind of kingdom that you're asking about. The church is not a gathering of people who are trying to affect civil government. Church is a gathering of people who are confessing Christ, who are submitting to the authority of the Word of God, and who understand that they have no connection to passing human systems. Ours is not a temporary ministry. Church has no civil, moral, Economic objective. Our only objective is redemptive. That leads us to a fourth element in understanding the church. I guess we could call it for another C, a great conquest, the great conquest. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised up on the third day. Look, what is the heart message of the church? Isn't that it? Christ and Him crucified. We preach the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, and the, and the open grave and a risen Christ. You can't even be saved unless you believe God raised Jesus from the dead, which means you had to believe that God killed Him. 
that he died as a substitute. Let me show you Romans 10. This is so interesting to me. When, when you think about what our evangelism is, it, it is all about, it is not about, you know, it's, Jesus wants to fix your life. Jesus wants to bump you up a few notches on the comfort scale, straighten out your slice and help you hit home runs. Thank you, Jesus, for the touchdown. Um, th- th- this kind of superficiality and frivolity is a million miles from the message of the church. The message of the church is the message of the cross and the open tomb, the empty tomb. Let me tell you, look at, look at the 10th chapter of Romans. Just a quick look. Snapshot. My heart's desire, my prayer to God for Israel is for their salvation. Okay? I want them to be saved. But they have a problem. Verse 2, I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. They don't know enough to be saved. We have a knowledge gap here. Well, what don't they know? Verse 3, they don't know about God's righteousness. Boy, that's where everything starts. It isn't that they don't know that Jesus loves them and wants to fix their life. What they don't understand is God's righteousness. They don't understand how holy God is. They don't understand, therefore, the wrath of God. They don't understand that God is so holy they could never attain unto that holiness on their own. See, the Jews believed that God was less holy than He was. And they believed they were more holy than they were. And so, they could move up to God's level. It all starts with the character of God. It all starts with the nature of God. And it's the nature of God that gets you to the cross. A God of absolute holiness, absolute righteousness, whose justice has to be satisfied. They didn't know how righteous God was. Verse 3 says, they went about to establish their own righteousness, which means they didn't know how sinful they were. You, You can't even get to the cross unless you understand the righteousness of God and the sinfulness of man. I read the, the whole gospel thing in Purpose Driven Life, and I was appalled. It was about that long. What, 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 there's nothing in there about the righteousness of God. There's nothing in there about the sinfulness of man. Furthermore, verse 3, they didn't understand that they were subject to the absolute righteousness of God. In other words, they didn't understand that the law condemned them to death and judgment and hell. They also didn't understand in verse 4 that Christ brought an end to the law as far as condemnation is concerned. I mean, if you ask these, I don't know, 85% of evangelical Christians in America, what is the significance of Christ's death on the cross? It would be hard for them to, I think, explain it to you. Christ was dying to put an end to the tyranny of the law by paying what the law required as a substitute for us, the great doctrine of substitution, imputation. So he says, I I wish they were saved, but they have a huge knowledge gap. They don't understand the nature of God. They don't understand their own sinfulness. They do not understand that they are under judgment because they fall short of God's absolute holy law. They don't understand that Christ provided that which fully satisfies the law for all who believe and brings to them an alien righteousness by grace. Furthermore, they don't understand the end of verse 4 that it's by faith. That it's for everyone who believes. They don't know that either. I mean, some serious stuff here.
They don't understand that you have to believe in Jesus as Lord in verse 9. Confess Him as Lord. Believe that God raised Him from the dead. Just keep flowing. I'll skip some of it. Verse 13, they don't even understand that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. They don't understand it's Jew and Gentile. They don't understand that the same Lord is Lord of all, Jew and Gentile. They don't understand that, that's, uh, that there's no separation. They, and then comes the compelling verses that we know so well. Verse 14, How then shall they call upon Him savingly, in whom they haven't believed? And how are they going to believe in whom they haven't heard? The point is, you can't believe what you haven't been told. The kind of superficiality that exists in so-called evangelical witnessing and evangelism is, is frightening. This is not easy stuff. Everybody's in a hurry to get a hand in the air or a name on a card or somebody to pray a superficial prayer and then believe that that person is in the kingdom without ever understanding these things. They can't believe unless... They believe the right thing. They can't believe the right thing unless they've been told. And they can't be told without a, what, preacher? And they can't preach unless they're sent. And it's not talking about church sending. It's talking about God sending. God sends us. That's why it says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. I was in Denver a couple of weeks ago. and I was up, uh, to see my wife's dad who's ill and... I did a pastor's conference because I was up there. It was really a good time with some pastors. And I walked into this thing in a hotel, and some guy ran up to me at a beard and kind of shaggy hair. He's just coming toward me kind of fast. And I never know if he got a knife or what's going on. Because it was a protest group, an anti-MacArthur protest group in front of the hotel when I got there. So, And I wasn't sure what kind of thing was. And he looked sort of like a guy who would, you know, be in a group like that. But anyway, he ran up to me and he just, he said, you're John MacArthur. And he just grabbed me and just hugged me, just and just kissed me on the side of the face. And, you know, I only kiss men in Russia if I can. And even there, it's a painful experience, actually. But I'm thinking, I don't know what this guy's doing. And then he went on to tell me about how he had, I never met him, but how God had somehow used the things that I had taught to get a hold of his heart. And I understood, and, and I understood after he poured out his heart, and then he gave me a, a letter, about a five-page letter, which I read later, and then it was tucked a $20 bill. I don't think he had very much money. still have that $20 bill in my pocket, just as a reminder. And I was living the experience of somebody who believes that the feet of the one who brought the gospel are beautiful. I mean, that was all that was, all that was about. It's, it's critical. Why? Verse 17, because faith comes from what? Hearing. The, the glorious Word of Christ, the best texts would say. It's about the cross and it's about the resurrection. Forget the pop culture. Forget the cheap entertainment. Can I say this? Cut down the Old Testament praise songs and get the cross and the resurrection in your worship. And don't overlook the Lord's table and baptism. Those He gave us to keep the cross and the resurrection 
central. So, the church convenes, as it were, to celebrate the great conquest. Number five, the church knows that it is engaged in a great conflict. The church knows that it is engaged in a great conflict. It surfaces immediately. (laughs) I love this about Peter. Verse 22, And Peter took him aside. Come with me, Lord. You're going down the wrong track here, buddy. Come with me. Began to rebuke him. This man knows no limits to his boldness. I mean, he is way over the top. God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now, um, I think his motive was good, don't you? He didn't like the idea that his Lord was going to suffer at the hands of the evil religious leaders of Israel and die and and so forth. So he pulls him aside. No, Lord. This is, and his motive was good. And this is amazing. He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Whoa. Can you imagine any experience with Jesus worse than that? I mean, it's bad enough when he calls him Simon. He often called him Simon. That's his old name when he was acting like his old self. But Satan? But look, anyone who takes a position different than the Lord's revealed truth takes his side with the enemy. You've got to be careful what you're doing in your church. This is foundational to the life of the church. Any unbiblical preaching, any unbiblical doctrine, any unbiblical ministry aids the enemy. And he says to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Man, I've thought of that so many times through the years. Lord, please, I don't want to be in the way. I don't want to make a problem. And how can I avoid doing that? By making sure that I am faithful to the agenda of my Savior. I am frightened to take liberties with His church. I'm frightened to substitute anything for His Word and His truth. And what is His will? I also find here the uh, responsibility that I have to make sure that Satan doesn't get into the church in any point, not only doctrinally, but even morally. I don't want anything in the church that threatens the purposes of the Lord of the church. And it happens, he says at the end of verse 23, because you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You create a man-centered theology and you're on Satan's side. Pretty straight stuff. And where are you going to know what God's interests are? Well, you're not going to know if you're in the emerging church and it's all ambiguous.
Anything in the church that stands in the way, any false doctrine that threatens the truth, any sin, that's why you go to Matthew 18. The first instruction ever given to the church is if you find somebody in sin, go to him. If he doesn't repent, take two or three. If he still doesn't repent, tell the whole church to go after him. If he still doesn't repent, put him out. Because the enemy wants to sow tares. The enemy wants to put leaven in the church. The enemy wants to corrupt. We're in a great conflict. And this is saying to us, the church is a group of people who pursue doctrinal and moral purity. You kick the doors of your church wide open, let everybody come on any terms, never confront anything, and you have created a stumbling block to the divine will. Guarding the church, uh, its theology, and guarding the church, its morality is part of our responsibility. I don't want to be a stumbling block to the Lord I serve. Uh, Number six, uh, also, and this is so interesting to me, there is the great contradiction the church is in the world for a primary purpose, and that is to be a witness. We're here to plead with sinners to repent, to plead with sinners to believe. Otherwise, we might as well go to heaven. What's our great commission? Go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. So, we have an evangelistic mandate. <laughs> and uh, what's so strange about it is this. Listen to this. Jesus then says in verse 24, Okay, um, now that you've you know, you understand your Christological foundations. You understand your Bibliological foundations. You know, you know what uh, your, your source of uh, truth is. It's the Word of God. Uh, you, you understand uh, how critical it is that the church maintain its doctrinal purity, its personal purity. Um, morally, you, you understand that you're to be separate from the passing systems of this world. Now you go out and evangelize. And he says this. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will, it, will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The bottom line is this. When you go, tell him this. I'm asking for you to exchange your soul for what I have to offer. This is not adding Jesus to your life. This is not spicing up your life for, uh, with Jesus. This is not taking care of your future and getting you out of hell and nothing more. What is called for here is self-denial, self-sacrifice, submission, losing your life to gain. That is this absolute demand. In fact, it's so hard that Jesus says in Luke 13 that many are going to try to enter the kingdom and they won't be able. Why? Because it's so hard to hate yourself. He says that in Luke 14, hate yourself. It might cost you your family. I came to bring a sword, separate people into family. He even says you can't even come after me if, you don't be, if you're not willing to give up all your possessions. I'm asking for everything. Talk about lordship. I'm asking for all of it. This is a full exchange. It's the end of you. Uh, The the word deny there, as I point out in the book, Hard to Believe, means to 
to refuse to associate with. It is to say, I refuse to associate with the person I am. I'm sick of myself. It is the Luke 18, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm pounding my chest. I won't even look up. Your salvation is more important to me than anything else. I give up everything. Not that the Lord necessarily is going to turn you into somebody poverty-stricken. Not that He's necessarily going to make you a martyr. But He's asking for this level of repentance. This level of brokenness. This beatitude attitude. And you know, when you think about it, He sends us into the world and then makes it virtually impossible for a human to do this. That's why we're comforted in the fact that regeneration is the work of God, are we not? But he's talking about repentance. This is the stuff of genuine repentance. This is the deep stuff of real humility and real repentance. It becomes a way of life. Look at Paul. Paul in uh, Romans 7, I think, gives us the most magnificent picture of a repenting, mature Christian. Oh, wretched man that I am. You don't repent once in your life. It becomes a pattern. So what do we say about a church in this regard? A church is a place where there is a serious, serious call to virtue and holiness in following Christ. Not a place for people looking for self-esteem. Not a place for people looking for self-fulfillment. A place to have uh, your dreams fulfilled, your ambitions fulfilled. It's for the desperate. It's for the broken, the crushed. Those who cry out and sell all to buy the pearl and sell all to buy the treasure hidden in the field. There's one final. And this, uh, I think, needs to be addressed by all of us. The church uh, is to be characterized by the great consummation. Verses 27-28, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Truly I say there are some of you who standing here will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. I think he's referring there to the preview of the second coming in the transfiguration which happens immediately in the next chapter. But the true church has only a passing interest in the world. A true, the true church is consumed with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Its affections are, things, are on things above Colossians 3, it is busy laying up treasure in heaven. Um, I love what it says in First Thess chapter 1. You turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. And it bothers me that our understanding of that glorious thing is, is, has been all kind of clouded up with so much fiction. People buy fiction books on... The second coming by the ton, rarely do they ever buy books that explain what the Bible says. And people say, well, how can we know? There's so many views of the end. Look, it's not that hard. You don't think, do you, that God wrote a book and completely botched the ending? Come on. The beginning is pretty clear. Six days, created everything, and he rested. Not obscure. Look, I think the ending is precise, crystal clear. Just take it at face value. Don't try to invent something that's not there. But the church of Jesus Christ today seems to me, the ones, at least the professing church, much more interested in creating a comfortable life for themselves here than anticipating the glories of the life to come. 
So, the true church has a definitive Christology. It has a definitive bibliology. It has a definitive ecclesiology. It knows it's separated from the world. It has a definitive soteriology. It focuses on the cross and the resurrection. It has a definitive angelology. It understands Satan and his forces and his kingdom and the impact they have. It has a definitive homardiology. And it understands what real sin is and it calls for a true and deep repentance. And it has a definitive eschatology. It lives in the light of the coming of Christ. Well, no wonder a church is hard to find, huh? See, that's pretty challenging stuff if you're a pastor. Look, what else do we do? This is it. This is it. I mean, this is what we do. As we have the unspeakable privilege of being under shepherds of the flock of God. Our Lord, we thank You that we've had this hour together and uh, we're... We're reminded, I think, of Psalm 11, verse 3, which says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Lord, I just pray that we'll all be faithful. Help us. Help us to be faithful. To lead the church to be what You designed it to be. To exalt Christ. Proclaim Scripture. Separate from the world. Focus on the cross and resurrection. Confront sin. Call for a deep and genuine repentance. Lord, help us to live in the light of the coming of our precious Christ. We say with John, even so, come Lord Jesus. We've had enough of this here. We're weary with our own sin. We feel like those martyrs under the altar in the 6th chapter of Revelation. How long, O Lord, how long until You vindicate Yourself and take Your kingdom and Your glory? May we so love You, O Christ, that we are consumed with Your glory and Your honor and live in constant anticipation of that day. Or... If we should leave this world through death at the day when we see You face to face and begin to worship You as You should be worshipped forever. Thank You for our time and for these who have come. And we are so encouraged again to be reminded of what lies before us as those who serve You and grateful for the privilege in Your Son's name. Amen. Thank You.